listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Hi. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Welcome travelers. to another week of Weary travelers. Welcome, you weary travellers, on your Wednesday morning. We have many wares. Many wares? Yes. Do we? We do. I didn't think we had any wares. We have plenty of wares. We have grain and flour for years. <laughs> Please let me give you one of my goats in exchange for your daughter. Yeah. True crime half, part-time true crime pod, pod, podcast. <laughs> part-time goat salesman. Was any of that English? Some of it. It's old oh, English. Oh, yeah. Anyway, welcome to another episode of Best Served Cold, the true crime podcast where we drink and wine and talk about crime. Maybe that should be the new thing. We drink and wine and we talk about crime. <laughs> sure. I'm yeah, we won a lot, I guess. one of your stunningly beautiful co-hosts, Laura, and I talk about serial killers to draw attention away from my crippling anxiety. Wow. And I'm your other beautifully stunning host, Tama J. Tama backwards is a mat, a thing you put feet on. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. I have no words for that. There are no words. I have no words tonight. Uh, Would you like to run the viewers through? I'm not going to lie. I'm already mildly sourced because... We made Tama <laughs> sort of sourced. invented this new cocktail, which is dangerously delicious. It's basically a twist on a choc martini. Sorry, choc mint martini, isn't it? But yeah. like slightly different. Would you like to tell the beautiful listeners what is in it so they so, too can get mildly yeah, sourced at home? So to give some context, there's a bar in Sydney called Old Mate's Place, which mad shout out, love that place. They have a cocktail, which is kind of like a, like what Laura said, like a chalk mint cocktail, but it's completely transparent. Um, the one I made was kind of inspired by that, kind of like a, a, a mint slice cocktail. Look, I'm not going to lie. It's what I imagine Shrek's pee looks like. Oh, yeah. It's not visually appetizing. There's ways to make it look better. But um, to, the, to the American viewers, I don't think they have mint slices in America. But, I don't know. It's like an Arnott's biscuit, which I think is an Australian yeah. brand. So, I don't, so it's just like I a don't chocolate know. with mint cream. It's like, no, you know what they will know? It's like an after dinner mint. Yeah, but more wafery, I guess. Oh, I was just talking about the flavour. Right. No, no, I mean like the, the chocolate. The, yeah, the, right. The, um, just tell them what's in it. Anyway, it's uh, vodka, creme de cacao, creme de mint, and uh, vanilla syrup. Which is it's just, it just makes it delicious. It's, it's very dangerously It's so drinkable. good. It's a school night for both of us and I am on my th- third. third. You're on your third, yep. Okay. You're cut off after this. I'm sorry. I'm going to go to bed after this. The bar's That's, closing soon. The bar is closed. Last call was 50 minutes ago. Yeah. How's your week been, Tama? It's been okay. It's, um, we had a, we had a pretty, like, again, this is our second weekend uh, recording because we've changed the the whole schedule. Yeah, I'm still not quite used to it. Yeah, uh, we had a good weekend. We we went down 
south uh, in the Southern Highlands. Of, a little adventure. Yeah, it was really fun. It was cold as hell. Which we love. Yeah. And uh, we got to see a lot of pretty flowers and pretty highland areas. It was lovely. Just a nice little day adventure. Exactly. How was your week? Look, in for, for the sake of honesty, I have not had a bad week, but I mean, I've just kind of been, you know, like not had the best a mental health week. Like we like to keep things real on the podcast. Of course. I think we've both been pretty open about our struggles with mental illness. Preach it. And so I've just not had the best, like I'm, I'm fine, but I've just not had the best week. So, you know, nothing happened. Just sometimes your mood, just your serotonin is not there. Yeah. Cannot be found. It leaves the building, goes on a holiday and, you know, it's fine. If you would like to help Laura feel better, please send us eggplant emojis via our messages on any oh social God, media please, platform. I would love, please fill my DMs with egg eggplant plant. emojis. I was going to say your eggplant and I was like, that's super sexual and yeah. weird. I'm I mean, not going to say that. Yeah, not your eggplant, did. Apple or Android's eggplant. But uh, leave us a five-star review. There you go. That'll make five me happy. Five eggplants out of eggplant. Five <laughs> eggplants. I rate this podcast five, five yeah. capsicums out of eggplant. <laughs> Thank it's you. It's the highest rating you can give a podcast. Yeah. You're making a small ratatouille for us, I guess. <laughs> Please just rate us enough vegetables for us to make yeah. the delicious pasta dish yeah. ratatouille. We, gotta eat. we really got to eat. We're spending too much money on alcohol. <laughs> alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's any housekeeping for this week. No, I no. have no housekeeping points. Yep. If you don't have any, no, I got nothing. Nothing. It's all. It's a regular old podcast. I don't think there's a six degrees. This one. No. Yeah. So not. just going to be a if good old. If you do have a six degrees of separation story, please send them send our way because we'd love to hear them. They're very interesting to listen to and get to feature on yep. the podcast. So send them our way. But if you don't have any housekeeping and I don't have any housekeeping, I think I know what time it is. What time is it? It's time to go to bed. No, it's time to do what all the lovely people came here for, which is tell our stories. And I think it's my turn to go first. It is your turn, yeah. Mm. So I'm not going to lie. I got halfway through doing my research for this and was like, I realistically could have done a two-parter. But... It's one of those ones where it's like you can either have a long episode where you sort of leave some little bits out or you can have a two-parter where it's like probably dragging it out like a little bit. So I decided to go for the first and we were just trying to squish as much important stuff and I'm going to – there's some stuff that I didn't get to include that we're going to go into in the recap episode which comes out Friday. So today – I'm doing none other than Pogo the Clown, John Wayne Gacy, a.k.a. The Killer Clown. The big case. So, as I said, I'm doing John Wayne Gacy, a.k.a. Pogo the Clown, a.k.a. The Killer Clown. He has a sadly and incredibly long list of victims that I'm going to read out. I think one of the largest lists of victims. Yeah, I I think for one of the more modern serial killers. Yeah. So, John Wayne Gacy only killed young men, and his victims were Timothy Jack McCoy, John Bukovich, Daryl Julius Sampson, Randall Wayne Reffitt, Samuel G. Dodd Stapleton, Michael Bonin, William Huey Carroll Jr., 
James Byron Hackerson, Rick Louis Johnston, Kenneth Ray Parker, Michael Marino, William George Bundy, Gregory John Godzik, John Allen Zyke, John Steve Prestige, Matthew Bowman, Robert Edward Gilroy Jr., John Anthony Mowry, Russell Lloyd Nelson, Robert Winch, Tommy Joe Bolling, David Paul Talsmar, William Wayne Kindred, Timothy D. O'Rourke, Frank William Landingen, James Mazzara, Robert Jerome Peast, and six other victims who were also buried in the crawl space, but sadly to this day have never been identified. It's really sobering when you read out a list of names that long. Yeah, we always find that whenever you read the victims out, it adds so much more weight than just three, four, five, ten. Because it's not just the person, it's the family, it's the mother and father, it's the brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles, Mm, it's the human behind it. It's the whole family unit that you destroy by taking because all most of these men were incredibly young as well. Yeah, he had a sadly a very sick thing for young men. So I'm going to go into his backstory a little bit, and he has a very interesting, not so much childhood but earlier life. So I've included a relative amount of detail because I found it fascinating how. Not just normal, like we we commented not last week, the week before, on how, quote, normal Dennis Nielsen was. Not only was John Gacy normal, but he seemed to have, like, the perfect American suburban life, which is just very very odd with what he did. So John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17th, 1942 in Chicago. His parents were John Stanley Gacy and Marion Elaine Robinson, and he had two sisters, one younger and one older. Growing up, Gacy had a particularly icy relationship with his father, but was quite close to his sisters and mother. His father, who was an alcoholic, would regularly be abusive towards both his wife and children, with Gacy being regularly assaulted both physically and verbally. In 1957, one of Gacy's school friends said he was visiting the Gacy house in the afternoon when he witnessed an incident where essentially out of nowhere, Gacy's father began screaming and hitting him while Gacy simply held up his hands to defend himself, never striking his father back. As a child, Gacy was overweight and unathletic, mainly due to a heart condition which meant he was ordered by his doctor to avoid all sports. This, coupled with his mother's attempts to shield him from his father, meant his father would routinely taunt him, calling him a sissy or a mama's boy. And Gacy seldom, if ever, would receive the approval of his father despite his repeated attempts. During his fourth grade in school, Gacy began to experience blackouts as well as seizures, which he was hospitalized for. And due to this and also a burst appendix, he would spend almost an entire year in and out of hospital between the ages of 14 and 18. Despite him obviously being unwell and with doctors unable to conclusively diagnose his condition, his father would routinely accuse him of faking his illnesses even as he lay in bed in hospital. At the age of 18, likely due to the cold behavior by his father, Gacy became interested in politics, working as an assistant precinct captain for the Democratic Party. Many speculate that he did this in search of the acceptance and friendship that he never received from his father. But his enrollment in the Democratic Party only fueled his father with him labeling Gacy as a patsy. After a particularly bad argument, 
with his dad, Gacy left for Las Vegas, getting work with the ambulance service and eventually at a mortuary. It was here that Gacy had his first intimate experience with death. One night while alone in the embalming room, which his room where he slept in was behind the main embalming room, he was so desperate for a like a friend, he climbed into the coffin of a young deceased boy, hugging him before sort of snapping out of it and realized what he was doing and leaping out. He quit and moved back to Chicago to live with his parents the day after this incident occurred. Now, as I was saying before, this next portion of his life, I think, is what makes him so interesting to dissect because he had an incredibly successful life from the outside. He rises up through the levels of his work and he does lots of charity work as well, which seems really at odds with this other side of him that we'll get into. So after his experience at the mortuary, he returns to Chicago and despite not graduating when he was actually in high school, he studies and graduates in 1963. He then takes a trainee position as a manager with the Nun Busy Shoe Company, where he is eventually transferred to Springfield, Illinois, where he meets and proposes to Marlon Myers, who is one of his co-workers at the time. During his time in Springfield, he joins the local JCs, which I looked up and it's like a training and organization group for like young Americans. Right. And after two years there, he's already vice president of his local chapter. So after having only dated for six months, M- M- I think it's Marlin. I feel like I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. Marlin and Gacy are wed, and they shortly move to Iowa as Marlin's father has purchased three KFC restaurants, which Gacy manages, and he- and he's paid in today's money of upwards of a hundred thousand dollars a year, Shit. plus a profit share of the three restaurants. So it's Damn. a very profitable move for him. It's during this time that he sort of opens up his own kind of clubhouse in the basement of their house where employees of the stores he manages can come and drink and hang out and play pool. And while he does invite members of his employment of both genders, it's mainly the young men that he wants to hang out with when they're over. Okay. And this is when he begins making sexual advances towards the younger male employees of the store. And then if they rebuff him, he basically claims that he's only joking or he says that he was testing them and their, quote, moral code. Okay. So in 66, Gacy and Marlin have their first child and their life seems pretty perfect, very normal white suburbia. And it's one year later in 1967 when things start to sort of spiral downwards. So in August of that year, this is when Gacy commits his first known sexual assault after he lures Donald Donald Voorhees back to his home under the premise of showing him porn. It's here where he plies Donald with booze and eventually convinces him to perform oral sex. And he does this with several different boys over the following months under essentially the same sort of guys. Some boys he even convinces are part of a homosexual experiment in the interests of scientific research and even pays the boys fifty dollars each to keep up the ruse. Which I just thought was the oddest thing ever. Yeah, he must be a very good convincer. Yeah. Well that's the thing. We talked about how people with psychopathic tendencies are incredibly manipulate charming easy. and manipulative. Yeah. So in an attempt to keep his first victim, Donald Voorhees, quiet, Gacy convinces another employee, Russell Schrader, 
to beat him up in a park to basically blackmail him and stop Voorhees from testifying or lodging a report against Gacy. Schrader does this, however, after Voorhees reports it to the police and identifies Schrader as his attacker, Gacy's involvement is confessed and on November 7th, 1968, Gacy pleads guilty to the sodomy of Voorhees and is sentenced to 10 years in prison. At this stage, Gacy's wife files for divorce and requests full custody of their child, which is granted and Gacy never sees either his ex-wife or his firstborn child ever again. While in prison, Gacy demonstrates a lot of the same behavior of being a very sort of together-driven person and quickly becomes head cook at the prison and also joins the JC chapter within the prison, boosting their membership from 50 to 650 in less than two years, also managing to get prisoners a pay raise for the jobs they did around the prison. Wow. So due to his good behavior, Gacy only serves 18 months of his 10-year sentence Holy shit. and is released into the custody of his mother on June 18th, 1970. So being after being sorry, after being released, he worked some odd jobs as like a fry cook and with some help from his mother, he purchases a house 8213 West Summerdale Avenue, which is where all his subsequent murders are committed. It's during this time that he starts his own business, which is, it starts as a, like a painting decorating business, but eventually he expands and he does like landscaping and interior design and all that sort of stuff. And it becomes wildly successful and has a revenue of over $200,000 within like the space of 12 to 18 months. He also remarries to Carol Hoff, who has two young daughters from her previous marriage. It's during this incredibly successful time in his life that he becomes a member of the local moose club and begins dressing up as a clown as either Pogo or Patches, where he would perform at parties, political events, charity events, and children's hospitals. And those are the photos that everyone knows of him in the clown makeup when he's performing as Pogo the Clown. So Gacy's first known murder victim was Timothy McCoy... On January 2nd, 1972, after a family party, Gacy was driving around the city and lured 16-year-old Timothy into his car at a Greyhound bus station. He takes Timothy home under the premise of allowing him to sleep the night at his house and then he'll take him back to the bus station the next day rather than Timothy having to sleep at the bus station while he waits for his ride. So Gacy claims... It's the next morning that he wakes up to find Timothy standing in his doorway with a knife. Reacting, he jumps up and after a struggle ensues, Gacy stabs Timothy in the chest several times. As Timothy lays dying on the floor, Gacy goes into the kitchen where he sees a carton of eggs, unsliced bacon and a table set for two. It's then Gacy realizes that Timothy had simply walked into the room to wake Gacy up for breakfast holding the knife and he's attacked him thinking that Timothy is trying to kill him. Right. However, it's during this attack that Gacy realizes how strongly violence and sex are linked for him, as he's been quoted as saying he experienced a, quote, mind-blowing orgasm while he stabbed Timothy. So it makes you wonder, had that event not happened, would he have ever made the link yeah. Between sexual gratification it's, and murder. It's possible he could have experienced or, or realized it another way, you know. Because he had assault. obviously already realized from 
assaulting and sodomizing young men that he obviously got off from the power of taking that choice from someone. Yeah, we've we've learned from a lot of cases that it quickly can escalate to there needs to be more. Yeah, but it it makes you wonder if he may have never escalated had this tragic event not occurred because he's quoted as saying that this point that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. So it makes yeah. you question whether he would have ever escalated had it not been for this event. Yeah, it's definitely we'll, I mean, there. we'll never know. Yeah, exactly. Timothy's body becomes the first body that Gacy buries in his crawl space below the home. After this, he commits a murder of a victim who is sadly to this day unidentified in 1974. In 1975, he murders his employee, 18-year-old John Bukovic, strangling him and burying his body under the floor of his garage. Now, prior to 1975, Gacy was still living with his then-wife and her two daughters at their home. So his crimes were entirely restricted to when, I guess, his wife would go out of town. Of course. Or during the day if she was out and he had the house to himself. However, after admitting to his wife that he believes he's bisexual in 1975, she files for divorce and after living together for a short while while I guess she tries to sort her affairs out, she eventually moves out with her two daughters and Gacy has the house to himself. And it's after his divorce when the frequency of his crimes increases dramatically and also when neighbours have been quoted as saying that they notice changes in his behaviour as well as hearing him come and go at odd hours. Neighbours were also quoted as saying, after Gacy's arrest, of course, they remembered being awoken in the middle of the night by sounds of muffled screaming and crying. Yeah, that's that'll keep you up at night. Yeah. God. It's during this time that the body of Frank Landingen is washed, found washed ashore on a riverbank with his underwear stuffed down his throat and investigators zero in trying to catch what they think maybe a serial killer at this point because they have found several a few bodies that he's dumped in rivers with cloths shoved down their throat um which Gacy was quoted as saying his second murder victim who is identified when he stabbed him uh bodily fluids and all this sort of stuff leaked out his mouth and got on the carpet so in order to try and make sure no evidence was ever left in his home he would stuff the victim's underwear or bits of cloth or something down their throat to absorb any bodily fluids. Yeah, which is something that um, I think Elmer Wayne... No, sorry. Uh, the Atlanta murderer did as well. Yeah. Some of his younger victims. Yeah. Oh, so this next bit gets me. So between the years of 1976 and 1978, Gacy rapes, tortures, and murders as many as 28 men. Twenty. Eight in two years. 26 of which are buried under the crawl space of his home. Some victims were taken in by force, others being conned into believing that Gacy was a policeman as he often carried around a fake sheriff's badge and he would put the spotlights on his car. Not the spotlights, the police lights, rather. Others were lured to his home under the pretense of a job, or the offer of drink, drugs, or money in exchange for sex. Once inside his home, Gacy would ply the men with alcohol or drugs and gain their trust. Once they were comfortable, he would produce handcuffs, and under the guise of a magic trick, he would then 
put the handcuffs on them, convince them to let him put the handcuffs on them. He would then rape and torture his victims sometimes for hours. He would then strangle the boy to death and bury the body in the crawl space, often using quicklime to try and speed up the decomp. So one of the examples I read when he was quoted as how he would trick all these young men into putting handcuffs on is he would have the key for the handcuffs and put the handcuffs on himself and the boys not knowing that he had the key would think he was doing a magic trick because he'd slip himself out of the handcuffs. So then he'd say to the young men, I'll teach you how to do this magic trick. Here, let me put the handcuffs on them. Once they had the handcuffs, I almost didn't include this next part because I found it so fucking creepy. He was quoted as saying that many of the men, he would say, the trick is you need to have the key. Like, oh, it just sends shivers down my spine. Jesus. It just... Yeah, that's not... God, this just, this is just insane. Just yeah. the le- the level of uh, of just how much of a because psychopath imagine he is. As you obviously your your brain doesn't immediately jump to I'm going to get murdered, but that would be that point when someone said that to you, you'd be like, I'm in trouble. Yeah. With someone you don't like, know. something's not. I'm in. Something's not right. I'm in trouble, mm. and now I'm in fucking handcuffs. Yeah, it's that red flag system in your brain that goes. Uh, yeah, we. The trick not be is here. you need to have the key. Yeah, like just and also what a taunting thing to say. Like, oh, you dumb fuck. Like there is no trick. I have the key. Yeah. Like it's just. Ugh. He clearly has that power dynamic. Psychopathic. Over yeah. Yeah. So on December 11th, 1978, Gacy visits a pharmacy in Illinois where within earshot of employee Robert Peast, he casually mentions to the store owner that he pays his employees at his business twice what this store does. Shortly after, and it's not clear from the articles I read whether that was meant to pique the interest of Mm. the young boy or if it's just a sad coincidence. So shortly after Gacy leaves the store, Robert's mother arrives to collect him at the end of his shift. Robert leaves the store and asks his mother just to wait for a moment in the car park as he wants to talk to a contractor about a job. He leaves the store at around 9pm and is never seen again. So Gacy has estimated to detectives it was a mere hour later when he would murder Robert by strangulation, leaving the boy to slowly suffocate and suffer on his bedroom floor while he chats on the phone to business acquaintances. Jesus, dude. Obviously, short like quite shortly after he doesn't come back to the car, Robert's mother worries and before midnight that same night, there's been a local missing persons report filed at the police station. Now, it doesn't take long for Gacy to be named as the contractor that Robert had mentioned by the store owner and detective, detectives visit Gacy's home the following evening. Detectives ask him for a statement and Gacy claims that his uncle has died, so he can't do it right now, but he'll go in later. He does, arriving at the station at 3am covered in mud, claiming to detectives that he's been in a car accident. And investigators do later find out that Gacy's car was towed out of a snowbank at around 2am, about 38 miles away from where Gacy later admits to dumping the body of Robert Peast. Mm. He denies any involvement in Robert's disappearance or that he'd ever offered him a job, 
but police don't really buy his story and believe at this stage that Robert is still alive, being held against his will at Gacy's home. A search warrant is obtained, and upon searching the home, they find several odd things, such as the police paraphernalia that he'd carry around with him, handcuffs, books on homosexuality, Valiant, which in the 1970s was the worst thing you could be. Yeah. Worse than a serial killer. Yeah. A Valium purchaser. No, homosex like gay. Oh, right. Of course. It's the worst thing you could be in the 1970s. Yeah. Gay. Bad time. They also find several driver's license and male's clothing, all of which appear far too small to fit Gacy. As well, they find a Maine West High School ring inscribed with J-A-S. At this stage, Gacy is essentially the main suspect in Robert's disappearance, but they don't at this stage know how bad it is. So he's placed under a two-man police surveillance, as well as having his car and any of his business work vehicles confiscated as well. And it's pretty shortly after this that it all starts to unravel. So further details of Gacy's previous charges of assault are looked into. They also interview Gacy's ex-wife and learn of the disappearance of former employee John Bukovic. The ring is also traced to the high school and linked to student John Allen Zyke. After an interview with his mother, they find there are many items missing from John's apartment, which, spoiler, they later find in Gacy's apartment. Police conduct an interview with Michael Rossi, who is a formal em- former rather employee of Gacy's and lived with him briefly up until April 1977. He tells police that a car that they link to John Allen Zyke had been sold to him by Gacy for $300. Just as Gacy is tiring of the constant police surveillance and has actually lodged a civil suit against the Des Plaines Police Department for $750,000. <sighs> A receipt which was found in Gacy's kitchen is traced back to 17-year-old Kim Byers, who worked with Robert at the pharmacy. She says she'd put the receipt in the pocket of her jacket, which she then loans to Robert, who'd been wearing it as he leaves the store. Oh, there you go. During this time, Michael Rossi also confesses to police that under Gacy's instructions while he lived with him, he'd spread roughly 10 bags of quicklime in the crawl space below the home. Another employee who also lived with Gacy at one stage tells police that Gacy had asked him to spread bags of lime as well, as well as dig trenches two feet by six feet in the crawl space, which Gacy had told the employee were for drainage pipes. Sure. Yeah. Okay. On the night, and the next bit, I've really only included the base amount of detail, and this is one of the parts I want to go into in our recap episode oh, on show. Friday. Yeah. So on the night of December twentieth, Gacy goes to his lawyer's office, where Gacy throws a copy of the Daily Herald on his desk and simply says, "The boy is dead. He's in the river." Gacy then unloads for several hours, confessing to all of his crimes, admitting that he'd buried most of his victims in the crawl space below his home or dispose of them in the local river. Gacy, due to drinking too much throughout his entire confession, passes out midway, and despite his lawyer begging him not to, the next morning he leaves the office and embarks on what can only be described as this rambling travel around town where he, like, visits his father's grave and goes to a bunch of people and confesses that he's killed 33 people. But I'm going to go into, I'm going to do some more information because it's very interesting. Strange. But we just don't have time for it today. Of course. So it's during this time that police are outlining the parameters of their second search warrant. 
Upon hearing of his erratic behavior, and as well, he purchases some marijuana and is caught by police. Gacy is officially arrested and held, fearing that he may be about to attempt to commit suicide. The same day, officers attend the home of John Wayne Gacy and begin digging in the crawl space. Almost immediately, they come across broken down human remains and the full horror of his crimes is uncovered. Gacy is officially arrested for the murders on December 21st, 1978 and provides an actual official statement of his crimes to police, drawing a rough map of the crawl space and where the bodies were to assist police with locating the bodies. A total of 26 different bodies are eventually found in the crawl space below his home. A few days after his arrest, James Mazarar's body is found in the Des Plaines River and Robert Peace's body is eventually found on a riverbank in 1979. On February 6, 1980, Gacy's trial commences where he's charged with 33 counts of murder and pleads not guilty by reason of insanity but is later proved to be fully sane by the court. On March 12th, after considering his crimes for less than two hours, Gacy is found guilty of 33 charges of murder and is sentenced to death for each murder. While incarcerated, Gacy reads book after book after book on law and appeals and appeals his death sentence many times, which prolongs it happening for quite a while. However, on the morning of May 10th, 1994, so... His Seven. trials in 1980. Yeah, wow. That's a long time. So on the morning of May 10th, 1994, at 12.58 a.m., Gacy is declared legally dead to the crowd of over a 1,000 people who'd gathered outside the jail via lethal injection. A complete psychopath to the end, Gacy never expressed a single shred of remorse for any of his victims, maintaining right to the end but that by enacting the death penalty, the state was murdering him. <laughs> His last known words were, kiss my ass." Wow. While what there are sadly still some identified victims of Gacy, as DNA testing advances, we do hold hope that the last of his victims can be given names and faces. The last of his victims that we were able to identify was James Hackerson, who using DNA testing was named in 2017. Wow. Wow, that's very recent. And there are still six unnamed men that he murdered. Man, isn't DNA is testing just in- amazing? So almost 50 years after Fuck. his murder, they were able... Yeah. But it also makes you so hopeful that even though whoever committed the crime may be long dead, that hopefully families whose children or brothers or mothers went missing may be able to be linked to, yeah. you know, unnamed bodies that are just, found. Just to know where your son or daughter is. Yeah. Like, just some form of closure. Which was one of the things that was brought up in the recent trial of the Australian serial killer, the Claremont serial killer, because he was tried and convicted for two murders and it's wildly believed and a large amount of circumstantial evidence points to him having murdered a third girl but her body has never been found and her family are like you're going to prison for life like 
please just tell us where our daughter's body is yeah. so we can put her to rest. Yeah. Like, it's just... Yeah, it's very sad. Yeah. But, yeah, there's um, there was a lot more about what happened in the few days between uh, Robert's disappearance and his weird journey around town where he confesses to, like, six different people... And his actual trial and um, his death as well. Like, he was dramatic right up until the end. There was a huge issue with the, uh, like, not pipe. What's the word? The tube that delivers the lethal injection. And so his death was delayed by, like, hours because they had to, like, fix Resolve all the equipment. That. Yeah. Yeah. Just to touch on that, um, the Australian serial killer again. There's a similar thing with um, Paul Wilkinson, where yeah. like they know who he killed, and it's widely believed that you know it's just that one victim. But her body was never found, and he he like admits to where it is, but never really helps as to find like pinpoint it where exactly yeah. it is. And it's one of those things where it's like. Well, it's just that psychopathic, Sad. like, has to have control right to the end. And I guess if you've been caught and tried with your crimes, that last shred of control you have is that sick pleasure they must get from yeah. knowing that that family is never going to get peace. I found it super interesting that he has such a, 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 a huge number of victims. But, Gacy. Yeah, Gacy. But you can find going off of his history, just how popular he was in terms of politically and able to form oh, yeah. groups around people. And that's like, some other stuff that I didn't really get into. Like at one point when his business was booming in the house where he had all these bodies buried, he was having parties with these big political... Jesus. He, there's a photo of him with President Carter's wife, like the first lady of the United States. Jesus Christ. When he was murdering, there's a photo of them together. Like, he was this huge... And that's what I mean. Like, okay, so Dennis Nielsen was boringly normal, which is what makes him so interesting. Mm. John Wayne Gacy was like this weird local celebrity. Yeah. Which just seems like... Just such a, a, an influential and convincing person. Because so it's... often we talk about how these people do what they do to try and wrestle back like some level of control that they maybe feel like they don't have in their day-to-day -day life. Like, John Gacy was wildly successful. He had a lot of control. He had people wrapped around his finger yeah, but maybe it wasn't the control he was necessarily satisfied with. Yeah, you know, it it, it comes up with a lot of things. Like, to, not to to put a like a weird spin on this, but it's like the thing with uh, BDSM and businessmen. Like a lot of highly successful businessmen, and statistically this has been proven, but a lot of highly successful businessmen like to be, you know, hurt and tortured in BDSM role play. Yeah. And it's a sense of like trying to relinquish control. Yeah. In terms of when they have a lot of control in their lives. It's this weird disparity between one and the other. And maybe he was like wildly popular and successful in this one thing. But on the other hand, he's a suppressed homosexual who doesn't know how well, to. Well, pa yeah, partially suppressed. Because I guess he'd, he'd come out to his wife as, or his ex wife as. as and she bi. reacted poorly to it. Very true. She left him. And but his... to be fair, one part that I didn't 
mention, which I was going to say on Friday, but I'll say now, is he told her once. So the way he told her was they were having sex and they finished and he said, that's the last time we're ever going to have sex. And then came out as bi and that he wasn't going to ever have sex with her again. Right. And she was like, peace out. Mama Mama needs needs her sugar. sugar. Hey. Hey. Nice. Nice. There you go. Best serve cold. We didn't even finishing each other's sentences. Yeah. Yeah. So that is John Wayne Gacy. There are a few things, as I've said like fifty times now, that I'm going to get into on Friday because there was just not enough time to include everything. But yeah, that's what that show's for, baby. That's Pogo the Clown, the killer clown. Yeah, that's one clown you don't want at your birthday party. Yeah, we're going to wrap up our Charles Manson mm. coverage now, are we? So... Wrap that shit up. This is the the final part to the Manson coverage. Part three. And I wanted to dedicate this entire time to the Manson family. The people that Charles convinced. The, the followers of Manson. Oh, okay. I took the word dedicate. As like a weird, I was like, "Why the fuck?" Like, no, I see. What as you mean. in, I'm I'm covering their who they are. For a minute, I stories. thought you were going to be like these poor children yeah. that got convinced. <laughs> I was like, "Where are you?" No, no, no we're going to have to all, edit this out. These are all normal people who were convinced otherwise to to delve into these, yeah, these but they weird still, parts they of themselves. Still murdered well, that's people. the thing. It's yeah. that's the thing is they they always had. I feel like they always had this. I guess it's like the Carla Hamolka thing. There's like a little bit of both. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's like you can't take away blame. Yeah, but you it, wonder a, if they would have done what they did hadn't they not met that yeah, person. Yeah, it's a good yeah. mixture of mind control techniques and persuasion and being a susceptible and and open to convincing person. Yeah, for sure. So there's a few of them. So I'll get I'll jump right into it. And basically, it'll also be like a it's going to be like a mini what I usually do for the the mo the other people and delving into their past and who they are and and how they met Manson. But it's like a mini thing. There's like several different people in one. So first I will talk about Susan Atkins. She was the woman who murdered Sharon Tate in the attacks. So Susan Denise Atkins was born on May 7, 1948 in San Gabriel, California. She was second to three children born in Alcohol, born to alcoholic parents and grew up in Northern California. After she dropped out of high school to support herself, uh, one when her mother died when she was around 15 and her father abandoned the family, Atkins moved by herself to San Francisco. In early 1967, while she was staying with friends, Susan Atkins met our boy Charles Manson, and by summer she was on a road trip with Manson and his group. Atkins settled with the Manson family at their Southern California ranch, the famous ranch, where she gave birth to a son whom Manson named Zazo Zose Zadfrak Glutz. I'm sorry, what was that? Zazo Zose Zadfrak Glutz. That sounds like something that comes out of my mouth when I'm trying to say a word and my brain doesn't work. Zezo again glutz. It's the sound you make when you're gurgling mouthwash. And then glutz is when you spew it out. Glutz. It's like the scene from Bruce Almighty 
When... <laughs> 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 That's so yeah. mean. So he was a thing. Who uh, names a child that? Here's the thing. And he was on a lot of drugs. Yeah, Manson dubbed all the followers of, of his family with new names. Were they all just as ridiculous as that? So he named Atkins Sadie May Glutz. Well, that's... Which, if you remember from like the interviews in the Mindhunter episode, he refers to Atkins as Sadie. Yeah, that's right. His real name right. is Susan Atkins. Yeah. So that's why when you when she refer when you first say to you go who the fuck is Sadie? Yeah, right. But that was her dub name as per Manson. How do you go Sadie to Zazuzuzuzu? Yeah, Zazuzuzuzadfrak Glutz. <laughs> it's the Zadfrak that gets me. Glutz is not a very nice name. No. Anyway, Continue. by July 1969, Atkins was a trusted member of Manson's inner circle, and he took her and two other of others are with him to shake down a man named Gary Hinman for money, which is what I referred to in the previous episode. Um, At this point, this was where we kind of get into the whole race war thing and... Refer um, to part two. Exactly, refer to part two. Uh, We go into the subsequent murders. I won't get too much into it because we all went into it before. But on October 1969, the entire Manson family was arrested and trials ensued the trials were just insanely bizarre you should watch any videos referring involving atkins or uh any of the other manson family members because it's just fucking bizarre uh, and on March 29, 1971 atkins herself was found guilty and sentenced to death along with the other defendants but as we know the 1972 ban on the death penalty changed her sentence to a life in prison Atkins was the longest-serving female inmate in the state of California at the time of her death on September 24, 2009, where she succumbed to cancer. She was in the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. So, she died in 2009. 2009. When was she sentenced, sorry? She was sentenced... She was found guilty on 1971 and sentenced to death. Yeah, so she served for 38 years before she Yeah, died. I think she was 70 or 60-something when she passed yeah. away. Uh, yeah, that's that was the first of the family. Then next we move on to Leslie Van Houten. Leslie Van Houten was born into a middle-class family in Southern California in 1949. In late 1968, she met, as well, Charles Manson and his family and moved into their ranch and became infatuated with Manson. Less than a year later, Van Houten stalked the into the house of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca and participated in their murders, which we go into in the previous episode as well. Just a quick question. If you remember off the top of your head, yes. jog my memory. There were three girls and Tex who committed the murders. Was that correct? There was about six or seven of them. Oh, okay. So there was like four or five girls and two men. Who were involved. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'll go into every single okay. one of them okay. at some point. The, these are all the significant family members who were involved some way in the murders. Um, and you'll know the exact number when I'm completely done with okay. the episode. Okay, I'll just let so you. So shut the fuck up. Wow, that's rude. Leslie Van Houten was born in Alt- Altdena, California on August 23rd, 1949. She was, as I said, the second child to a middle-class family and she was known as being an outgoing and athletic 
woman in her youth, and in high school she became the homecoming princess. During the time she began, during that time, however, she began experimenting with drugs such as marijuana, hashish, and LSD, which she took on a regular basis and progressively more and more as years went on. At one point during her teens, she also ran away briefly with her boyfriend to the hot Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, a hub of counterculture at the time. In the summer of 1968, Van Hoon met Bobby Beausoleil, which we also know as one of the Manson family members, and Catherine Gypsy Scher, also one of the family members, and began traveling with them. Soon after they met, Scher began telling Van Hoon about a man named Charles Manson, whom she described as Christ-like and having the answers to all their questions. Well, yeah, you can have the answers to everything if you just make your own shit up. Yeah, if you're like, what's my name? It's Zaza Zubzaza. That's it. Dan. Zadfraklutz. Boom. Uh, by the fall of that year, 19-year-old Van Houten was the youngest member of the family, and the others were, and with the others were living with Manson at the Span Ranch or the outskirts of LA County. But in 1969, that's when we know we get into all that. Uh, soon after the murders. Van Houten said, all we did was listen to the Beatles' White Album and read the biblical book of Revelations. Uh, and as we know, this what is from- life. Yeah, no, this is from where Manson built his vision of the race war. And while Van Houten was not directly involved with the murders of Sharon Tate, she and Tex Watson and Patricia Craig- Krenwickle were involved with the murders of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca, mm. where she was reportedly- re- Responsible for inflicting a reporter of 16 to more than 40 stab wounds on La Bianca. My God. I just... Like, when you actually think about stabbing someone... Yeah. Even just 16, 16 times, times let alone just, 40. It's just... It's yeah. so awful. So, she was also arrested and charged for the her involvement in the murders in 1969 and also went through the whole ordeal of the death penalty. Um, and, again, just look up the videos because it's crazy on uh, uh, in a 1977 retrial for her charges the judge declared a, a ministerial mistrial sorry after the jury was deadlocked for 25 days in April 25 days yeah yeah wow that really puts it in perspective the fact that John Wayne Gacy was found guilty in less than two, two hours. hours yeah exactly I guess it's interesting to to think of because days. while you know it's it's that perplexing question of like how guilty are they, you know? Yeah. Um. So in April uh, two thousand sixteen, after his this nineteen unsuccessful previous hearings, a, a parole board recommended that Van Houten be released. However. California Governor Jerry Brown, acting on his authority to veto the decision, refused to release her, stating she posed a, quote, unreasonable danger to society if released from prison, end quote. Makes me wonder, like, not not that I am justifying their actions in any way, but, it, I mean, it makes me wonder how true that would be, though. So, a lot of them... Without the direction of Charles Manson. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I go into it a little bit, but a lot of them have genuine remorse for what they've done. Mm. But they do blame a lot of it on Manson, and that ends up being their downfall and trying to appeal. Right. So, um, 
as I was saying, uh, on on October, September 6, 2017, 68-year-old Van Hooden appeared before a parole panel for the 21st time. And she was quoted as saying to the two-person panel at California Institution for Women in Corona, to tell you the truth, the older I get, the harder it is to deal with all of this, to know what I did, how it happened, end quote. Despite another positive recommendation from the panel, Governor Brown again denied Van Houten parole, as did his successor, Gavin Newsom, in June 2019. A California appeals court this month of this year, in September 2020, rejected Leslie's last latest bid for release from prison. Wow. So she's still trying to this day, and just this month it got denied. Wow. I mean, why would you want to fucking leave prison at this point, you know? Yeah, it's like how do you, from the 1970s to 2020, Yeah, how, like, so much has changed. How would you even go about trying to exist in a society Just, where, yeah, like, exactly. iPhones and the the internet and social media is a thing when you went to prison, the only thing you had was a landline and... Postal letters. Yeah. So now we're moving on to Patricia Krenwinkel. She was born in the months of waning months of 1947 to a homemaker and insurance salesman. She grew up into a uh, into a childhood of insecurity. At school, she was bullied for being overweight and uh, and had an embarrassing endocrine condition, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, I'm not too familiar with it, that caused her to grow excess amount of um, hair on her arms. Uh, alongside these insecurities, Krenwickel's home life began to crumble as well. Her family would later claim, though, that she had a perfectly normal childhood, but uh, according to her, it was anything but. At a parole hearing in 2011, Krenwickel described her parents' divorce uh, and how she was forced to go to three different high schools, and how her older sisters, her older stepsister, sorry, introduced her to alcohol and drugs. Following the, the divorce, Krenwinkel's mother moved to Alabama, and Krenwinkel, just seventeen, still in high school, chose to stay in California with her father and stepsister. Krenwinkel eventually followed her mother into Alabama, Alabama to go to University of Spring Hill, a Jesuit school. She even considered becoming a nun at some point, and in the end, Krimoko only lasted one semester before moving back to LA, where she moved in with her stepsister, who was at the time a heroin addict. While living with her sister in Manhattan Beach, Patricia Krenwinkel met Charles Manson. Manson later described that to Krenwinkel, whom he preferred to call Pat, uh, as a prize winner for beauty, but she had smarts. At one time, she had been pretty deep into the Bible. It was easy to see she didn't believe in herself as much as she wanted others to believe. Hmm. From her perspective, Krenwinkel saw Manson as an escape from a dead-end job and her sister's addiction. At her 2011 parole hearing, she also acknowledged this, saying, uh, quote, This seemed like a way out. He seemed like the answer. He seemed like my salvation at the time. Manson also corroborated the story and recalled how five hours of conversation, sex, and complete fulfillment, Krenwinkel put her head in his lap and cried, saying, Charlie, you've given me a new world. Anything you do has to be right. Take me with you wherever you go. Oh, 
that's yeah. not good. No. So Manson did take her in, and together they lived in the in a van with two other women, Lynette Fromm and Mary Brunner, who would become the mother of Manson's third biological son, Valentine Michael Manson. In Chronicle's recollection, this group eventually grew to about 50 people. Wow. They routinely used LSD and marijuana, which in San Francisco at, in the late 1960s was incredibly available. But uh, Krenwinkel, who once wanted to become a nun, found herself in Celio Drive on August 9, 1969, and committed those heinous murders. Her desperate love for Manson led, by, led her to shed pieces of herself and her morality bit by bit. And she recalled... And I quote, I wanted this man's love. Anytime I say I saw something I normally would be against, any of the values I held, I began to justify it, rationalize it. The more I did that, the more I lost any values I had. And mm. um, one of the one of the changes to the names also affected Patricia Krenwinkel. Manson decided to rename her Katie because their old names belong to their past. Right. So, in August uh, 1969, um, she was a completely different person, you know, going from a shy schoolgirl to aspiring nun to murderess. Motivated by Manson, who aimed to start that race war, of course. Uh, as the police began to close in on Manson and his family, Manson ordered Krenwinkel to go back to Alabama. She later said that she went to Alabama to escape Manson himself, but this was likely a doubtful explanation given her behavior before the arrest and during the trial, which if you know, as I've been referring to these different videos and photos, you see that she's fucking batshit crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The police nonetheless arrested Krenwinkel there on December 1st, 1969, two days before his 22nd birthday. Today, Patricia Krenwinkel remains in prison, and she now, since um, uh, Sadie, as we'll refer to her, uh, has passed away, she's the longest incarcerated woman in the California penal system. During her trial, Krenwinkel reportedly showed little regret. She shaved her head and carved an X into her forehead in solidarity with Manson. As the trial went on, Krenwinkel sat and drew satanic symbols. When asked if Tate's pregnancy disturbed Krenwinkel, she replied, No, I don't think about it. However, as the years went on, her uh, opinions and demeanor changed, and she attributed this to her father standing by her throughout all the years. Um, to quote her, she said, he kept on believing in me, again in her 2011 parole hearing. Yeah. His loyalty and his love, his unconditional love and acceptance were the beginnings of the foundation for me to stop and realize what I had become, the monster I had become. To date, Kremlinkel has been denied parole 14 times, and yeah. that is more than Manson, who was denied parole 12 times before his 2017 death. This is how I look at my life, she said, in a 2014 documentary, My Life After Manson, which is a very interesting documentary you should definitely check out. Uh, it is broken beyond repair. Uh she went on to also label her younger self as a coward in a New York Times uh, in, uh, interview. Now, we get into Tex Watson. Yes, this is the one I've been excited for. So, Tex also, his birth name, 
Charles Denton Watson Jr. was born on December 2nd, 1945 in Dallas, Texas. He grew up in a Methodist family believing that the best way to achieve the American dream was to work hard, get an education, and lead a moral life. And for a very long time... Tex Watson complied with this. He was an honor roll student and a church youth group leader. And upon graduating from high school, Watson chose to go to North Texas State University in Denton. Now, Denton was a far cry from his upbringing in a small town of Dallas, inside Dallas. And uh, some believe it was here where Watson began to kind of slip into the party scene of the 60s. Uh, When funds ran low for Watson, he took a job with uh, Braniff... Airlines as a baggage handler, which got him free flights as a perk. Uh, so he flew to Los Angeles about eight times in the two in the two months he worked there to visit his old fraternity brother. He fell in love with California, as I think most people do. He it's so sunny. Yeah, All he that vitamin D. He attended Cal State Los Angeles with the idea that he'd finish earning his degree there, but he dropped out after less than a semester to enjoy life in the fast lane. He got a job selling wigs and got his fraternity buddy, David Neal, a job at the same store. When he was driving home one night, he picked up a hitchhiker. In his exact words, he was quoted as saying, Hitchhikers were pretty common on Sunset, and I pulled over to pick pick one up. When he told me his name was Dennis Wilson, it didn't mean anything to me. But when he said he was one of the Beach Boys, I was impressed. Now, this is the Dennis Wilson, (laughs) the Beach Boys drama that we all know. Uh, who, when Watson drove him home to his house in Sunset Boulevard, was invited in. And he was shocked to see when he pulled up to the house that it was fucking enormous, far different from anything he ever knew in his small town in Texas. Yeah. And when he was invited inside, he saw in the living room a man sitting down on the floor with his guitar, surrounded by five or six young women. He looked up, uh, Watson recalled, and the first thing I felt was a sort of gentleness, an embracing kind of acceptance and love. Another man inside the house introduced him. Quote, this is Charlie, Charlie Manson. Watson was hooked, but not with any form of drug or alcohol, just with Manson himself. It was a sense of community mm. that drew him in. And here's a big quote from him saying, Here I was accepted in a world I'd never even dreamed about, mellow and at my ease. Charlie murmured in the background something about love, finding love, letting yourself love. I suddenly realized this was the, what I was looking for, love. Not that my parents and brother and sister hadn't loved me, but somehow now that didn't count. I wanted the kind of love they talked about in the songs, the kind of love you didn't ask you, you, that didn't ask you to be anything and didn't judge what you were, didn't set up any rules or regulations. So, as we know, uh, in the Manson family, regular acid trips were a norm, bizarre yeah. teachings. It was strange. And the strange behavior also led Tex down a strange path and it began to draw a lot of attention towards a group. Tex moved into the Manson Ranch soon after, and this is where actually Watson got his nickname, Tex, by George Spann, the 80-year-old nearly blind owner of the ranch, placed Watson's Texas accent and photo in his Tex. 
In isolation at the ranch, Manson began to preach a strange gospel, convincing his followers that he was a godlike figure whose every word should be obeyed. Watson described the events leading up to the murders in an interview, quoted as saying, after about two weeks of taking these drugs and becoming just a void of conscience, uh, Manson said, hey, I want you to go out and kill these people, to go up to this place and kill everyone who was there. He gave us the orders, the directions. He told the girls to write up something witchy on the walls. Here I was, a naive Texas boy without a conscience, thinking about thinking that the world tomorrow thinking that the world, sorry, was going to come to an end tomorrow. So after the murders, Tex fled to Texas on October 2nd, 1969, after about two months after the subsequent murders. Mm. The race war that Manson predicted never happened, as we fucking know and anyone with a half a brain would know. Uh, His freedom didn't come last long, though. He was arrested on November 30, 1969, charged with seven counts of first-degree murder. As you can probably imagine, his parents and siblings were shocked and horrified to learn of his fate, and attorneys fought for his extradition to California for nine months, but ultimately failed. After losing an attempt to plea insanity, a jury found Watson guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder. Uh, In prison, Tex became a born-again Christian, as most murderers do, and actually became an ordained minister. Oh, wow. Yeah, and weirdly enough, Rosemary LaBianca's daughter supports Watson's ministry and called abundant love, though Watson has been accused of using money for his, from his ministry for personal purposes. Interesting. Fun little fact. It's really interesting hearing him talk about the murders because there's so many people that think that he was more so behind it than even Charles was. He was. As I sort of mentioned last episode, he wanted to overthrow Manson for the role of head of the family. Yeah. He wanted to have the his position. And he felt that if he did this, he would have he would be able to overthrow him. So Tex claims to feel remorse for the crimes he committed and the lives that he ended fifty years ago, quoted saying, I hate what I've done. I hate having to be the person that had committed that a crime that's so hideous. I hate that. He explains why he chose to play a role in the slaughter. Growing up as a passive person, not communicating my desires, I entered college to please my parents. I looked up to older college men as father figures while fearing failure and anger and angry. The crimes ended up bringing my parents to their knees, causing devastation, hurt, humiliation, and much embarrassment. My siblings were left to hold them up from all the emotional pain, which I deeply regret. So as I, you know, kind of mentioned over and over, like, He's these family members all are looking for this parental mm. dominant figure. Yeah, but it's interesting to hear it. that none of them necessarily came from like super troubled backgrounds. They're no. all from kind of like middle class. But white. one thing that's common in all their backgrounds is they're highly susceptible to someone persuading them, and they're very open to interpret their uh, to persuasion. Yeah. Um, they're basically just just putty at this point that yeah. anyone can mold into what they want if they're given the right directions. So, uh, Tex actually married and had four kids before California banned conjugal visits in prisons. <laughs> wow. 
And unfortunately, because of this, he and his wife divorced in 2003. In 2016, October, a parole board denied Watson's request for parole for the 17th time since his conviction. One prosecutor framed Tex Watson as an unrepented mass murderer after parole hearing. These, and he quotes as saying, these were some of the most horrific crimes in California history, and we believe he continues to exhibit a lack of remorse and remains a public safety risk. Watson, who's now 74 years old, remains in prison in San Diego County, just north of the Mexican border. Though Charles Manson is now long dead, Charles Tex Watson still lives on. Continuing to appeal the decisions of the court in a as yet unsuccessful bid for his freedom. He spent more of his life behind bars as some of the other uh, family members have. And along with them, it looks like he's probably going to die in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby Beausoleil. So Bobby Beausoleil was born November 6, 1947 in Santa Barbara, California. He grew up in a large fa- Catholic family. And at 15, he was sent to a reform camp for delinquent behavior. And soon after, he fled to Los Angeles and San Francisco, getting involved in the music scene. It was during this time he befriended and moved in with Hinman, who was a Manson follower. By the time the Tate murders occurred, Beausoleil was already in jail for the July 1969 murder of Hinman, as we went over the last episode. Mm. So serving a life sentence, Beausoleil spends his time creating music and selling art. Steve Clem Krogan, who murdered Donald Shea, uh, he was born on July 13, 1951. He was a artistically inclined high school dropout who was involved in petty crimes before he joined Manson's cult. Long before Manson and his followers found shots in the Span Ranch, Grogan was working odd jobs there where he met a ranch hand and stuntman Shay. Believing Shay had snitched the, the police about some of the Manson family's criminal activities, Manson ordered Grogan and fellow follower Bruce Davis to murder Shay on August 26, 1969. After Grogan was originally sentenced to death, the presiding judge reduced his sentence to life in prison because he felt Grogan was too intellectually inept and high on drugs to have planned the murder. Mm-hmm. Grogan received the parole in 1985 after revealing to authorities the location of Shay's remains. Oh, wow. So one of them was granted parole. Yeah, that's it. Uh, Bruce Davis, who murdered Gary Hinman and Donald Shay, he was born on October 5, 1942 in Monroe, Louisiana. He was the editor of his high school yearbook and attended college in Tennessee for a few years before traveling to California in the early 1960s. He met Manson and some of the female followers in Oregon and eventually became Manson's right-hand man. Davis was present during the murder of Hinneman and actively participated in the torture and killing of Shea. Jesus. Although he was temporarily on the lam for a time, he turned himself in to authorities in 1970. Having become a preacher in prison, Davis is currently serving a life sentence and has been continuously denied parole. Uh, Linda Caspian, born June 21, 1949, in uh, Bidford, Maine. Linda, she moved to Los Angeles in 1968. She met Manson through Catherine Gypsy Share and moved to the Span Ranch with Manson and his followers. At first, Caspian found Manson's message to be peaceful, but his tone eventually changed to that of violence and paranoia. She was sent to the, uh, the, the tape murder scene, but we never went inside into the house as 
Watson told her to stay outside. She also stayed in the car during the LaBianca murders and eventually leaving the scene with Manson. Caspian eventually turned herself in, becoming a lead witness and received immunity to all the crimes. Hmm. Uh, Lynette Squeaky From. Although she was one of... Yeah, right? Although she was one of Manson's most trusted associates, Lynette had no hand at all in the Tate-LaBianca murders. She was born on October 22, 1948, in Santa Monica, California, and as I said, she was present for either of the murder scenes. However, she was a fixture in front of the Los Angeles courthouse during Manson's trial, remaining loyal to him throughout. After Manson was convicted, he was moved from prison to prison and from moved from town to town just to be near him. In September 1975, she pulled a gun on President Gerald Ford in Sacramento. She was convicted and of the attempted assassination and sentenced to life in prison. Oh, wow. The trial ended with Fromm throwing an apple at the face of the prosecuting attorney, <laughs> knocking his glasses off. Jesus. In December 1987, Fromm escaped from the West Virginia prison in an attempt to meet up with Manson, who she heard had developed cancer. She was captured and imprisoned until 2008 when her parole was granted. Fromm was released a year later. And that's it. That's all the prominent... Members of the family, everyone else is kind of like, you know, a bit, yeah. not to say they're insignificant because they are significant in certain ways, but those are more significant ones. Just looking at photos of Tex Watson's hair when he was arrested. That His is hair. an amazing bowl cut. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The 60s bowl cut. I love it. What a look. So good. Such a good look. Yeah. What a look. Yeah. I mean, what a fucking group of people, man. That, yeah, so Laura's right now looking at all the mugshots of them then Compared 60s, to what they look now. Now or at the time of their, before the times of their deaths. And um, yeah, I think I think uh, the Lynette one really got me just throwing the apple at the prosecutor and just yeah. wanting to stay near Manson at all times. Obsessed with like, him. Really, yeah. And it just goes to show that the kind of sway that he has on them even... After his incarceration and yeah, death, they even. still want to be around him. Like I think even Tex Watson was saying that he still feels he would have, uh, he would submit con- control to Manson if it was still going yeah. on to this day. I wonder how the girls felt about his death. That would be very interesting to know. I imagine they felt remorseful, although some of them were obviously linking Blaine to Manson in attempts to... Yeah, I wonder you know, if they would paroles. have been, like, happy. I don't know. I don't think gone. so. I think he had such a hook in them. Yeah. You know, he, he really got in there. Wow. You know, that even, was a good one. Yeah. Then that's it. That, that, that concludes the Manson trilogy. That is our big one, Manson yeah. coverage all wrapped up neatly with a little bow. Yeah. So, in our Friday episode, I will probably go into a bit more of the more recent things about Manson, you know, like his appeals, the interviews, uh, his lasting impact on the world, you know, all that fun little stuff. All that jazz. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. Well that's done. Kind of it. Like, it was such a, 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 an old, not an ordeal, but a, a trial compiling all that information. Mm. You did good. That was a lot to get through. Yeah, because like all these, um, all the individuals r- in- involved, it was like 
doing my own little because we re research all our topics and our individuals and everything and and these Manson family members it was kind of like having to do that for each and every one of them and mm. then finding the more interesting ones and then trying to condense down the ones that were not so significant yeah no it was a good job very well researched thank and you. presented well very nice yeah thank you well that wraps up the cases so i guess for for those of you who just come to hear about the crime. Thanks for joining us. What's going on, cobbers? What? What? I said, what's going on, cobbers? Coppers? Cobbers. Oh, what's a cobber? You know what a, I was about to describe what a copper was for the American people. Cobbers just like, uh, like a, I think it's like just a worker or like a, a person. like A cobber. Like yeah, cobber. C-O-B-B-E-R. Yeah, like just never, never heard of an, that. An, an, an everyday man. Right. A cobber. Yeah. Like, how you going, cobber? It sounds mildly insulting. It really does. It's actually, it's a nice, it's a term. I'll, I'll... Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah. It's just like you've... saying mate, like, hello, cobber. Right. Okay. Um, Yeah, it's just a colloquial term for mate. Okay. Cobber. Mm. Cobby. I, I don't think it has any genuine meaning. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, for those who just tuned in for the true crime stories, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Yep. For those who stick around for the weird, nonsensical banter at the for end. For the cobbers. <laughs> or you cobbers out there. Strap yourselves in, because yeah. here it goes. So, what are you grateful for this week, Tama? Uh, I'm grateful for Australia kind of making a... Not an effort, but a... I don't know where a, you're going with this. Kind of moving forward from what's going on with COVID. Oh, the restrictions yeah. kind of like lifting and we're doing <clears throat> yeah. good things. And- we're doing all right, you know, and I feel like it's a it's partially a few people in charge who are kind of doing a good job and, you know, in um, without the help of people that really matter, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's a hard no, battle. No, it's exciting seeing our world very, very slowly returning yeah. to some level of normalcy. Yeah, and I guess we'll fucking see what happens with the world. Yeah, where we're at in like two years from now. I don't know. I what don't reckon. You? I don't reckon we'll be traveling overseas anywhere anytime soon. No, unfortunately. No. What about you? What are you thankful for? Um, I'm honestly really super grateful for that drink because <laughs> that was. I cannot even describe how delicious it was. Yeah, you really think that one? I cannot describe how much I enjoyed it. And I could just drink that all night long. Yeah. And I'm really sad I have to go to work tomorrow because I would have about five more of them if I could. Well, but I can't because yeah. I've got to go to bed. Next time we have a, a a night off or a day where we don't have to do anything the night before, we can have a few. Mm-mm-mm. And uh, if you want to join along at home while listening to this podcast... Uh, probably not while you're at work or driving. Just be or safe. Or definitely not driving, but I fully encourage drinking at work. Sure. If you can get away with it. Yeah, if you can get Why away with not? it. Why not? Just put it... It's green, so put it in a teacup. Pretend it's peppermint yeah. tea. Yeah, or if you do the one where I, from Old Mate's Place, where it's completely clear. Pretend it's water. Yeah. Even better. <laughs> yeah, just have a bottle of this no fucking No one will cocktail. ever know. Jesus, you'd be fucked. You really would be. Yeah. You'd be shit-faced before way, you know it. That's the way to get through 
at least the second half of the day. I don't know. I've never been someone I can't bring myself to drink before like lunchtime. Yeah. I can't do it. Do you think they say shit face in America? I have no idea. Sounds like an, an Australian We have a thing. lot of different names for being drunk in Australia, like shit-faced, sourced, sloshed, yeah. fucked. Rorted. Rorted, munted, <laughs> yeah. blind, uh. Uh, totaled. There's so many. Scat. And, scat? Yeah, scat. Jordan that- says that one a lot. Really? Yeah. You know that's a word for poo, right? Yeah, no. Like it's, when people it's, like to have sex with poo, it's called scat play? Yeah, yeah. But scat's like, I think scat's like mostly getting high and like your hangover from getting high. Huh. But I've never heard of that be one just before. a hangover in general. I like sourced. Getting sourced. Yeah. Getting on the sauce. Getting on faulty. Uh, yeah, there's so, I feel like because Australia does have a bit of a drinking culture, doesn't it? It kind of does. People who listen to this show probably think we're alcoholics. We actually don't really drink that much outside no. of this show. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't like- think of any more names. If you have more names of... What? what? I did it <laughs> you again. You always do that. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. If you oh have more God. words that are names for getting drunk... Please send them to us because yeah. I'd be interested to know what do you call getting shit faced in your country? Yeah, and if you have any uh, Australian colloquial words that you don't understand, hit us up and we'll explain them on the show for you. Basically, in Australia, we just remove the last like two or three letters from any word and put O on the end. Yeah, servo, bottle O. Yeah. Like we just shorten, so we shorten things. Maccas, Mickey D's. Yeah. Uh I can't now I've said that I can't. Even the even the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, ScoMo. ScoMo. Yeah. Kevin O seven. Yeah, Kevin O seven. That's a good one. Kevo. Yeah. Steve O. Dino. It's just O. Yeah. <laughs> it's O. Oh. Yeah, Australia has a weird thing with O's. You call your mate Jonathan, call him Jono. Jono. Steve. Yeah, very Steve-o. true, Steve-o. My yeah. dad's called Steve-o. My dad's Steve Z. It's weird that both our dads are named Steve. Yeah, but different Steves. One's with the V, one's with the PH. Mm. Your dad's more acidic, more acidic than my one. More acidic? Yeah, the PH. How does that make you more acidic? The PH level. Oh, that was a clever <laughs> joke. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. That was clever. That took me a second to get that, but yeah, like that was regular that was like Walter White that was here. well articulate. Well done. Thank you. I'm actually mildly impressed and not much you do impresses me. <laughs> oh, 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 fucking hell. All right. Guess I'll stop making this uh, fucking mint slice cocktail then. Well, I mean, I know how to do it myself. Now, oh, so. oh, fuck. I don't need you anymore. Well, okay. I thought it was the most impressive thing I've done so far, but... Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's really saying a lot. Well done. Oh, you managed oh, to mix spirits together. Yeah. No, you are you are very good at lots of things, actually. Thank you. What else? What else is there to talk about? Uh, when did we get the cat tower? Did we talk... We haven't no, talked about that. No, we haven't that. talked okay. about that. That was on the Friday, I think. Oh, my goodness. So, the story of this <clears throat> fucking cat tower. 
So as you may know, because we never stop talking about them, we have three cats. Yeah. So we had one of those like scratching post things, but it was realistically only big enough to fit one of them on it at once. So this lady in our building was giving away this cat tower that was like multi-level. And we were like, oh, perfect. Like that yeah. is the perfect size like a little for bit of an upgrade. three cats. And she was giving it away for free. And so we thought, why not? What have we got to lose? So I'm on my way from work, home from work rather. Tama gets home from work before I do. He sends me a message being like, I think I'm going to need some help with this cat tower. I'm like, what do you mean you're going to need help? Like, it. <laughs> what, what do you mean? It can't just carry it. Like, you can't, what do you need help for? And then I got home and we went to see this cat tower and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. It is taller than I am. So for reference, I'm six foot seven, six foot six and a half. Wait, what? Six foot seven? Yeah. No, you're not. Six foot seven. That's taller than I am. Oh. <laughs> you fucking mom. Fuck. Six foot. Well, you're LeBron James now. <laughs> well, like, what do you mean? Five foot seven. Six Sorry. foot seven. Fucking hell. Oh, it's a couple <laughs> sh- inches shorter than Big Show. <laughs> Malaka. I'm joining the NBA next week. Yeah, Jesus. Five foot seven, and it's taller than I am. Like, it's just so huge. It barely fits in the space. It dominates our... It's the biggest thing in our bedroom at the moment. It's just ridiculous. But the cats love it. Yeah, they but it's just it. every time I walk in, I get a little chuckle because I'm like, this <laughs> fucking so cat big. tower yeah. is so ridiculously large. But a welcome addition to our house. And the cats dig it. So yeah, they really like it. They're very happy, which That's our all existence revolves around satisfying our fur children. Yeah. So. That's it. But yeah, we're heading into checking out that weather app. We're heading into warmer weather, which I am not excited about. No, whatsoever. fuck right off. Filming these. Filming? We don't film. Recording <laughs> these is not going to be fun. Well, it won't be that bad because it'll be at night. With the blinds closed, yeah, and how this house does Doesn't get, get this relatively cold. Back room gets warm though because the sun. Not if you have the blinds closed. Yeah, true. Anyway, I'm not we'll particularly right. looking forward to it. She'll be right, mate. Don't She'll worry. be right. She'll be right. We're gonna chuck some tinnies in the esky. Put yeah. on some stubbies. Chuck her in the ute. Chuck her in the ute. Pull go a to the servo. We'll go to Nala. Go to Nala. Yeah. Do some nangs. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to think of. Are nangs a th- is that do we call them nangs or are they called nangs everywhere? No, they're called nangs here. They're they're called whippets in ah uh, um, like everywhere. We else. just why do we why are we determined to make everything sound so much more bogan? Yeah, I know, right? They were like, oh, we could have some whippets. And we're like, nah, mate, it's yeah. nangs. Everything's got to be slightly like use. I don't know yeah, any other country I, that says use. That is my pet peeve when How people going? say use. Yeah, oh, I which hate I, it. I I don't think that's used anywhere else in any any country. What do you use up to? Yeah, so in uh, Australia, it's a huge, like it. a huge bogan thing to be like use. It honestly, it's I hate it so much. Yeah. It makes me want to die every time someone says it. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it so much. Yeah, you just got to channel your inner roof tiler. Well, as someone mm. who was raised with a father, who every time I said me and Tama, oh, you mean Tama and I? Yeah. Dad, it's been 28 years. It's I'm not going to change. Yeah. In fact, we're just going to keep doing it despite you. 
Yeah, exactly. It's become a bit of a running joke. Anyway, as someone who has had that my entire life, so grew up in a little bit of a grammar Nazi household, when people say use, it just, it's like chalkboards on fingernails. No, fingernails on a chalkboard. I'm really on a roll with the words this evening. It could potentially have something to do with the three (laughs) drinks. With like three or more yeah. shots of alcohol the in them. Three drinks of uh, of cocktails you've the had. Three drinks of the apocalypse. Yeah. For Laura's you've, apocalypse. You've grown a whole foot. <laughs> I've grown more yeah. than a foot, according to me. Apparently. Six um, foot seven. Yeah. Bet you didn't know that. You've learnt new. Picture that English. next time you listen to this podcast. It's Tama on the couch and then he's got fucking Bigfoot yeah. next to him. Got Big Bird right it's next to him. This Yeti. Yeah. This female Yeti bird who's obsessed right. with serial killers. Yeah. And then in my spare time, I go running through the wilderness and scare hikers. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, good on um, you. I, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's really much to talk about at this point. You know, uh, I guess if you have any suggestions, we have, we've actually had a few su- suggestions on different topics. Yeah, cases that people want us to cover. Yeah, so and that's I'll be really cool. Looking I into those. really dig that. I really appreciate people uh, reaching out and... Because we want to do things that interest you. Because this exactly. is a show for us, but it's also for you. The and the listeners. code word for this week is Ratatouille. Ratatouille, yeah. So Try to fucking spell that. You know, the Disney movie or the pasta, whichever you prefer, yeah. or both. I, I like both. So if you're new here, we have a code word every week, except last week when we forgot. <laughs> uh, oops. We have a code word every week where if you stick around and listen to this shit show at the end and you know the code word, shoot us a message so we know you stuck around. And if we remember next episode, you'll get a little shout out. Yeah. But we forget a lot of the time. So (laughs) please do it. So to be fair, there's only like two people who do it every now and then. No, there's... Well... There's a few people that do it every week. There's there's quite a few lovely people yeah, that do it every week. Yeah, and thank you for doing that. It's really cool. Appreciate that. But yeah, uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. Chuck us. I know every like person that runs a free content platform says this, but if you haven't already and you're listening, we would really appreciate a five-star review because it actually genuinely helps. Yeah, five eggplants out of eggplants. boost the show up the podcast chart so it's not just us inflating our ego it genuinely helps promotion for the show so if you haven't left us a review on itunes please leave us a review please say nice things so we don't cry ourselves to sleep at night our fragile our fragile egos can't take it yeah we cannot handle it but we are the bsc podcast on all things social media our email address if you ever want to shoot us a love letter is best served cold podcast at gmail.com and I don't have anything else to say to you, Tama. No. Well, there we go. So thank you again for tuning in. Make sure you check out our recap episode on Fridays and our mini-sodes on Mondays. And otherwise, we'll see you next Wednesday. Bye. Bye. Bye.